All right, so we're going to be in 2 Timothy, and we are taking uh, a one-week break at this point from our series through Mark. Um, ben will pick, pick back up, Lord willing, next week. And I'll be starting uh, this series in, in 2 Timothy, and just as, as I have opportunity uh, to preach, we'll work through uh, this letter from Paul to Timothy. So this morning, we're going to be looking at chapter 1. Before we read that, let me just give you a a few remarks as far as context of this letter. Uh, I think that'll help as we go through this first chapter, if if we see it in in context. So this is is Paul's last letter, his uh, last will and testament, so to speak. Um, And and he's writing, obviously, here to to Timothy. Primary theme throughout the letter that we'll see is, is perseverance in the gospel. He's urging Timothy to continue hoping in Jesus. He's writing from prison, basically on on death row. He's awaiting execution. He's he's faced abandonment from friends, and now he's staring down the the end of his ministry. And so these are his his final words. Um, And as I mentioned, it it is written to Timothy, but I think it's important to see that it's intended for a larger audience as well. And I, I think there's several uh, pointers to this fact, but one would be the, the formal greeting at the beginning. If that's to just a good friend, it, it's, it's very formal for that. So I think it's intended to be read by a larger audience. And if you look at the end of 1 Timothy, the closing words, the end of 2 Timothy, the closing words, there is a plural there, grace be with you all. So I think the intent is... Yes, primarily and most immediately to Timothy, uh, but it's to us as well. It's, it's to a larger audience, to the local church. And so as we work through this, uh, through this letter and this chapter this morning, as I refer to, and I will often, refer to Paul's words specifically to Timothy, we can take those as words to us. That, that's a word of, of exhortation to us as well. Um, one caveat to that. There are certainly times where, being Timothy's role in the church, that there are specific words of command or exhortation to Timothy as a pastor. I'll try to point those out as well. Um, and the last, uh, last thing I want to mention, Th- this quote was from John Calvin in regards to 2 Timothy. And I think it's, again, helpful. Put it in perspective before we read this first chapter. Calvin says this, All that we read here, therefore, concerning the kingdom of Christ the hope of eternal life, the Christian warfare, confidence in confessing Christ, and the certainty of doctrine ought to be viewed by us as written not with ink, but with Paul's own blood. For nothing is asserted by him for which he does not offer the pledge of his death. So with those initial comments in mind, let us look at the first chapter of 2 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, 
and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Let me briefly pray for us one more time. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to open your word, to hear from you. So I pray that in our time this morning, by your spirit, you would strengthen our hope in you. Would you make us more like your son, Jesus? For your glory and for your name's sake, would you do this? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was in high school, I ran track. And I ran some long-distance events. I ran some sprints. By far, my favorite event was the 4x100 relay. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, it's, you have four guys on a team, each running 100 meters totaling one, one lap around the track. I love being part of a team. Uh, it, the pressure wasn't only on me. It was a, a very short sprint. So you knew in about 11 or 12 seconds, maybe 10 and a half seconds, um, your, your time is up, right? So you're running a very short sprint. In the race, e each runner had three important responsibilities to ensure that it was a successful race. They had to receive the, the handoff of the baton. So the, the teams each had one baton. The first runner would run, hand off the baton to the next runner. He would run, and so forth. So the first responsibility was to receive the handoff of the baton smoothly. Right? The second was then just to run as hard as you could. And lastly, then to hand the baton off to the next runner smoothly. So in our practices, we, we of course, we ran. It's track, right? So we, we ran but we also took time to practice the handoff because it was crucial. It was crucial because if, if you fumbled the handoff, you lost precious time. And it was crucial because you wanted to build upon the previous runner. And so the handoff was important. 
And I think we see this same idea uh, in this chapter this morning, but also throughout this letter to, to Timothy. The handoff is important. The handoff is crucial. And so Paul is, is here passing the baton to Timothy. He's passing the baton of the gospel. He's urging him to run. Take care of the baton. Don't drop it. Or in other words, he's, he's urging him to endure with confidence and to pass that on to the next runner. And so as I've already mentioned, while, while Paul is most clearly exhorting Timothy, he, he's intending this to be read by a larger audience, by, by us as believers in the local church. And he's exhorting us to endure with confidence. And so as we start, let, let me take a minute just to explain what I mean when I say endure with confidence. Primarily, I mean we are to endure the suffering and persecution that we receive for the sake of the gospel. And we're supposed to endure that with confidence in the gospel. Right? So primarily, it's to endure suffering and persecution for the gospel with confidence in the gospel. Now, I say primarily because I don't think it's only that. I think we, we can extend that application um, beyond just that to say, yes, to endure the world, to endure suffering, uh, to endure persecution for the gospel, but we're also to endure broken relationships, endure the, the loss of loved ones, endure sickness and, and chronic pain, endure disappointments, endure slander, endure heartaches, endure injustice, endure sleepless nights, endure disobedient children, endure difficult jobs, endure monotonous tasks. And I'm saying not only to endure that, but to endure it with confidence. Confidence not in this world, confidence not in anything this world has to offer, but confidence in the one who made this world, confidence in the one who upholds the world, confidence in the one who controls the world, confidence in the one who, who came into the world and suffered for us, confidence in the one who judges justly, confidence in the one who ordains our suffering and who ordains all things for his good purposes, confidence in the one who abolished death, confidence in the one who brings life. We are to endure all that with confidence in Jesus Christ. Now, how, how is that possible? How, how can we endure that list that I just ran through? How can we endure with confidence? I think Paul outlines three ways in this text. I think he urges Timothy to remember your foundation, to rekindle your faith, and number three, to preserve the gospel. Now, I tried to do a nice, clean alliteration, and I, and I, I failed. I had, I had a couple in mind. I felt like they were a bit of a stretch. Um, so that might, might be another way you have to endure. You have to endure this sermon without a nice, clean alliteration. So number one, you have to remember your foundation. Number two, rekindle your faith. And number three, preserve the gospel. And my goal this morning is, is to help us see this exhortation, to endure with confidence uh, as we work through this passage under those three headings and hopefully walk away answering the questions, why should we endure with confidence 
and how we can endure with confidence. So as we start, remember your foundation. Throughout this letter, Paul reminds Timothy of what he's going to face as a minister of the gospel. And, and therefore, he urges him to remember uh, this is not a new faith. This is not a faith that's on shaky ground. The gospel is not in danger. But rather, Timothy's faith is grounded in Jesus Christ from before the ages began. If you look down at verse 9, it says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so, Timothy's faith, our faith is not on shaky ground. And it's not on shaky ground because it's not based on us. It's not based on our works. It's based on the work of Jesus Christ. It's based on the grace found in Jesus according to his good purposes. We see similar language in, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he says, even as God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. The plan of God to save a people for himself, it's not an afterthought. It's not plan B. And so therefore he's urging Timothy, based on the solid foundation, remember it. Remember your foundation. Remember who it is on which you stand. Remember who it is that saved you. And we'll see that he grounds this entire chapter, he grounds this entire message of enduring with confidence on, on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. And so as he, as he encourages Timothy with this idea, the, the eternality of his salvation, he also reminds him that he's building upon the foundation of the apostles. If you look at Paul's greeting in verse 1, it's a fairly standard greeting for Paul. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. He's an apostle by the will of God, therefore he speaks as one authorized by God, authorized by God to, to deliver the message of God. And in verse 13, Paul also says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So what are, what are these sound words that Paul has in mind? It's, it's the very message of God. It's it's the promise of life that's in Christ Jesus. And again, j just consider Paul's context as he's writing. I mentioned he's in, he's in prison. He, he's waiting death. He says he's bound with chains in chapter 2, verse 9. So I have to think this, this promise, when he says in verse 1, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, I just have to think that carried even more immediate hope for him. It certainly was the, the purpose of his ministry. He, he lived for the purpose of preaching the message of life found in Jesus. You see, for Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. So it, it was his very breath, very motivation, very purpose. But I have to think in this context, he is thinking about the promise of life. He's thinking about the fact that God has kept him. And now he awaits that death. So in a, in a world that's, that's broken by sin, marred by rebellion against God, in a world filled with death, Jesus offers life. Look down at verse 10. 
Verse 10 states, And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus offers true life. He offers eternal life through the giving of his life. The eternal Son of God enters his own creation. He takes on flesh as a man to stand as a substitute for all those who would turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus. He he lives the perfect life, dies in the place of sinners, rises three days later, conquering death, abolishing death, and bringing life. And now he commands everyone everywhere to repent and believe. Repent and believe. So I urge you, if you're unsure of what you believe, unsure of what you think about Jesus, or you just outright reject Jesus, I would urge you this morning, repent and believe. Talk to someone before you leave. True life is found in Jesus and only Jesus. Repent and believe. This is the message of life that enables Paul to endure. This message of life enables Paul to say in chapter 4, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So as a result, in, in Paul's last words, his final words, he reminds Timothy to remember his foundation, to let him know it's, it's, it's now his turn to run. He, he's passing the baton. And as Paul expresses his thanksgiving for Timothy, uh, primarily in verses 3 through 6, he further builds on this foundation. So, so he starts with the, the eternality, before the, before the foundation of the world, before the ages began, we have the foundation of Jesus. Then he, he moves up a layer, the, the apostles. And now he reminds Timothy that they worship the same God as Paul's ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians, the same God who revealed himself through his law by the hand of Moses. This is the same God that Paul refers to in verse 12. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Paul, Paul's not ashamed of his imprisonment because he knows whom he has believed. And we'll come back, we'll talk about that in, in, in just a minute. But for now, just see that, that Paul rightly recognizes the foundation. And he's urging Timothy to do the same. The importance of that is, is to realize this is not something new. This is not a new faith that Paul is coming up with. Right? If you've been, uh, if you're in a life group and, and you're working through Acts, we've seen that that's, that's a very accusation. This is a new sect that he's coming up with. This is a new religion. It's not. It's not. This is the very hope of Israel fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he's reminding Timothy of that. And, and Paul worships God and proclaims the message of Jesus Christ with a clear conscience, recognizing that he has been appointed as a preacher, apostle, and teacher to announce the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus Christ. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says he's preaching what he received namely the gospel. And in in the Lord's sovereignty, uh, he's ordained that he would redeem his people, that he would save his people through the proclamation of his word, through the passing of the gospel from one generation to the next. And so Paul not only uses himself as an example here, but again, one more layer on on this foundation that he's reminding Timothy of, 
He reminds him of his grandmother and mother and the shared faith that they had. And we see that they were committed to teaching him the word of God. If you flip over, um, probably one page, chapter 3, and look at verses 14 and 15. Second Timothy 3, 14 and 15. But as, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. His grandmother and mother g- gave him the gospel at an early age. And so let me, let me just give a, a few words of, of exhortation application here. Parent, parents and grandparents here, what your kids and grandkids need most is to hear the gospel. That's what they need most from you, is to hear the gospel. Right from the beginning, teach them the Bible. Study scripture with them. They, they need to hear the gospel, first and foremost, above anything else. To those who have parents and grandparents who faithfully taught them the scripture, praise God for them. Right? Praise God for faithful parents and grandparents. It's a gift of God's grace. I feel that this morning. It is a a gift of God's grace to have faithful parents and grandparents who, who taught you the gospel. Praise God for faithful parents and grandparents. To those who don't have parents or grandparents who taught them, I would encourage you to thank God for the grace He's shown in bringing about other people in your life who have faithfully shared the gospel. These are your spiritual family, spiritual fathers, spiritual grandparents. For example, if you notice in in verse 5, Timothy's father is not mentioned there. Most likely, we see in Acts 16, I believe, he's an unbelieving Gentile. However, in the introduction, both to this letter and to 1 Timothy, Paul refers to Timothy as his beloved child. And so, on this Father's Day, let me, let me give a word of warning, exhortation to the fathers. Let the absence of, of Timothy's father here be a warning to you. We have a responsibility to faithfully lead, to faithfully instruct our children in the gospel. That falls on the fathers first and foremost. So let his absence, let's the absence of, of Timothy's father mentioned here be, be a word of warning. So as Paul reminds Timothy of, of his spiritual heritage, he, he's reminding him of who God is. He's reminding him of the faithfulness of God. He's encouraging him to continue in the faith, to build upon the, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We see that in Ephesians 2.20. In other words, Paul is saying to Timothy, it's your turn to run. You're up. You need to make sure you take the baton without fumbling. This is not, it's not a new race. It's the same race. I've run. Your grandmother and mother have run. Now it's your turn. So he's calling him and urging him to be faithful. And so we've seen the first way we can endure with confidence is to remember our foundation. This moves us to our second point. Rekindle your faith. Look at verse 6. Paul says, For this reason, 
I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. So because of Timothy's sincere faith, because of those who have come before him, because he's building on the apostles' teaching, Paul says, for that reason, fan into flame the gift of God. What what does Paul mean by the gift of God? There there is some debate over over what that means, what that phrase means. I I would argue that Paul is exhorting Timothy to, to fan into flame his ministry of the word that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Or I think you could say, fan into flame your God-given faith for the purpose of your God-given ministry through the power of God's given spirit. I think that's what he's getting at with, with the gift of God. God's given faith for the purpose of your God-given ministry through the power of God's given spirit. And I think you can see those three components that I just mentioned, really, in verses 5 through 7. Verse 5 references Timothy's sincere faith. Verse 6, we see that the gift of God is seen as that which is in you through the laying on of my hands. That's the same idea in 1 Timothy 4, 4 um, I think it's 4.14. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you probably similar to an ordination service or a commissioning service of setting apart Timothy for the ministry. And then lastly, in verse 7, we see, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So I think if you trace that argument through 5 through 7, you can see that Paul wants Timothy to know that God has given him all that's necessary to complete his God-given task. And now urges him and charges him to, to fan into flame that gift of God. How do we do that? How how do we fan into flame this gift? How do we fan into flame our our faith? How do we tend to the fire of our faith? I'm sure all of you can imagine a time when you were sitting around a fire, the fire starts to to dwindle a little little bit, the flame starts to fade. What do you have to do? You have to fan the, the flame, you have to stoke the fire, maybe add wood. Ultimately, you need to tend to the fire. I think Paul is urging Timothy not let the, to not let the flame of his faith go out. Tend to it. How does he do it? How does he tend to the fire? He beholds Jesus. He puts before Timothy Jesus over and over again throughout this chapter, throughout this letter. Paul is urging Timothy, remember Jesus. He says in, in chapter 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. And over and over again in chapter 1, he's putting forward Jesus Christ. He mentions Jesus Christ by name six times in this chapter. We fan into flame our our faith by beholding Jesus. Look at verses 8 through 10. And this is worthy of of much more of the time than I'm able to give. This is 8 through 10. We could spend weeks there. But look at 8 through 10. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So remembering the very foundation of his faith, 
namely Jesus Christ, is how Paul urges Timothy to rekindle his faith, to rekindle this gift. His courage for ministry is rekindled as he's fed the truth of the gospel, the truth that it's not his works that saved him, but rather it's the purposes and plan and grace of God. It's, it's the truth that in Jesus there's life. There's true life. And this truth enables Timothy to have courage, to not be ashamed. As you can see, the end of this chapter, verses 15 through 18, Paul was on the receiving end of the shame as Phagellus and Hermogenes abandoned him. They were ashamed to be associated with him. He, he's a prisoner for the gospel. They're ashamed of that message. They're ashamed to be associated with Paul because of that. And yet he also provides a positive example of one who stood by him, Onesiphorus. I think if you, if you pronounce the names confidently, you just, people just go with it, right? So I'm going with Onesiphorus. But, but he stood by him, right? He, he was faithful to Paul. And so just as Paul is using his last words to exhort Timothy to have courage, to not be ashamed for the gospel, consider the words of Jesus. These are very similar words throughout the, the final teachings of Jesus. He urged, too, his followers not to have fear, but to have courage. John 16, says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's not an if, we're, we're going to have tribulation. Right, but what does he say? Take heart, have courage, I've overcome the world. Let me ask you, do you ever feel ashamed of the gospel? Do you ever feel nervous or fearful what people might think if they know what you truly believe? What do you do? What do, you, what do you do if you're feeling ashamed of the gospel? If you're feeling nervous or fearful, what, what do you do? Uh, I think if you find yourself in that situation, the, the answer is, is not a multiple-step self-help process that you need to walk through. The answer, as we clearly see in this chapter, as Paul reminds Timothy over and over and over again, is to look at Jesus. Again, Paul says in verse 12, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. He knows Jesus. He knows that there, there's life in Jesus. And over and over again in this chapter, Paul points Timothy to Jesus. Paul recognizes, uh, seems to recognize a lack of courage in Timothy, or, or maybe it's uh, temptation to be fearful. And the way he fights this is, is to put Jesus before Timothy. He continually upholds Jesus. Let me run through. There's six, again, as I mentioned, six specific mentions of Jesus Christ in this chapter. Many more if you consider the, the pronouns and, and so forth, but six specific mentions of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Also verse 1, there's the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, Grace, mercy, and peace come from Christ Jesus. Verse 4, or verse 9, I'm sorry. His purposes and grace given to us in Christ Jesus are from eternity past. Verse 10, death is abolished and life is given in Christ Jesus. And lastly, verse 13, 
The sound words of Paul's teaching are concerning the person of Christ Jesus. So Paul is, is lifting up Jesus Christ for Timothy. And we need people in our lives who will remind us of Christ, who will continually point us to him. We need to be people who will continually remind others of Jesus, who will continually uphold Christ. And just as Christ reminded his followers, so too Paul reminds Timothy, there will be difficulties. You will suffer. But the promise of life in Jesus is far greater. As he says uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I don't think Paul is making light of the suffering there when he says this light momentary affliction. I think it's, it's light and momentary in relation to the eternal weight of glory, right? To the promise of life in Christ, it, it is light and momentary. That's not to minimize the real suffering, pain, hardship that we face. It's just to magnify the beauty of Jesus and, and, and the significance of life that's found in the promise of Jesus. And so knowing this enables us, knowing this enables Timothy to endure with confidence. So we remember our foundation, we rekindle our faith, and lastly, we preserve the gospel. Look down at verse 14. Paul says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. As I mentioned, this is at the heart of Paul's concern um, for Timothy and for those who would be reading this letter. It's that the, the gospel would be guarded. And I want to be clear here. Paul's concern is not in the power of the gospel. Paul's not worried that the gospel will fail. There are no threats to the gospel. The gospel is the power of salvation. Paul's concern here is a perversion of the gospel or an abandonment of it by Timothy or by, by us. And you can, see, you can see this at the end of Paul's letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20. He says, o, o Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge. Paul's warning is out of concern for the faithful preservation of the gospel. Again, not, not concern surrounding the power of the gospel. The gospel is not at risk of failing. Jesus is building his church. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He does it through the gospel. And so Paul has just spent the previous verses reminding Timothy of the rock-solid foundation that is Jesus Christ, and now as a result urges him to preserve the gospel by holding fast to it and passing it on. And you can see this from, uh, from this verse. The gospel is, is something that's in, entrusted to Timothy. And if you think about that word entrusted, just for a minute, when you entrust someone with something, it normally implies a full confidence 
in their ability to carry out that task. For example, if you entrust your kids to a babysitter, you trust generally in their ability to watch your children, feed your children, care for any of the other needs that come up. Right? You're, you're entrusting your children to a babysitter. If you didn't, you wouldn't entrust it to them, right? Um, but if you consider now the, the, the task at hand for Timothy, he's been given a task that he's incapable of, of fulfilling alone. He's been entrusted with something that on his own, he will fail. He's unable to complete this task on his own. But the, the beauty is that he's, he's not alone. He, he's been entrusted with the gospel, told to guard the, the gospel, but yet he wasn't left alone. And this is, this is why we can have confidence while we endure. Jesus will preserve his people and save his people through the preservation of the gospel message. We, we see this assurance, we see this truth starting at the beginning of verse 14. It's by the Holy Spirit who dwells in him. It's, it's through his reliance on the indwelling Holy Spirit that Timothy will endure with confidence and will keep the gospel free from error. Again, if you go up to verse 12, it says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Do you see that? Verse 12, or verse 14, Paul tells Timothy to guard the deposit entrusted to him. Verse 12, Paul states he's convinced that Jesus will guard the deposit entrusted to him. In other words, what God requires, he supplies. That's, that's worth our consideration. What God requires, he supplies. God requires holiness. He supplies holiness through his son, Jesus Christ. God requires judgment for sin. He supplies his son, Jesus, as substitute to stand in the place of the judgment we deserve. God requires faithfulness. He supplies faithfulness through his son, Jesus. God requires perfect love. He supplies perfect love in his son, Jesus. God requires us to hold fast to the gospel. And what does he do? He holds us. He perfectly keeps his children in his son, Jesus. So brothers and sisters, we can have confidence because our confidence is rooted in someone outside of ourselves our confidence is rooted in our perfect Savior given to us by Jesus, by, by God. Jesus, given to us by God. And this amazing truth, it, it doesn't mean we just sit back idly and watch. As one commentator put it, human effort thus is imperative, albeit in reliance on divine enablement. So as we've seen, the primary way that we express our dependence on God is to look to Jesus. That's our responsibility, is to look to Jesus. Paul has encouraged Timothy to endure by continually setting before him Jesus, reminding him that Jesus is his foundation, reminding him that in Jesus there's reason for courage, reminding him that setting his eyes on Jesus will rekindle his faith. So we've seen that Timothy will, will be enabled to preserve the gospel through the indwelling Holy Spirit and through the ability of Jesus to guard him. We also see that by the power of God, Timothy will be able to endure. 
If you look again at verse 8, and we're nearing a, nearing a close here. Look again at verse 8. It says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I think when we, when we think of power that comes from God, we often think and, and might even prefer that it include protection or escape from suffering. Paul seems to think here that the power from God is the ability to stay true to him till the end. Not to avoid suffering, not to avoid hardship, but the power of God enables him and provides the ability to stay true to him until the end. Paul rightly seems to recognize that his suffering and imprisonment, it's not a source of shame, but rather it's a necessary part of his role as a minister of the gospel. And, and this should serve as a reminder for all of us here who are in Christ Jesus, suffering for the gospel will come. And again, let me, let me just consider, put before you a couple passages as we come near to our close. James 1, 2 through, two through 3 states, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or Peter's words in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So brothers and sisters, we, we, we don't need to fear the worst that this world has to offer. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear prison. We don't have to fear persecution. We don't have to fear suffering. We have a Savior who has abolished death and brought life, eternal life. Because of this hope, this sure hope, we can have confidence to take the baton and run our part of the race. We can endure all this world throws our way because we have a foundation that's unshakable. We have a Savior that has brought immortality. And so now I would urge you, I would encourage you, as Paul urged Timothy, look to Jesus and endure with confidence the race that's set out before us as we trust that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are faithful. You are good. That's most clearly seen in your son, Jesus. And so I pray that whatever words were faithful from this passage, we would apply them we would be encouraged by them. We would be convicted by them. Lord, I pray that we would look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And would we do that for others? Would we be quick to uphold Jesus for those here? Lord, would you do this for your namesake? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.